Thank you for coming. The object of this talk is to make you nostalgic for the 50s, <laughs> even if you weren't born then. It was what it was like. Uh, I saw that film when I was a kid at Eastwood Primary School. We all saw it, uh, shown throughout America and Britain, duck and covered drills. I had a backyard cubby that was, could be turned into a nuclear fallout shelter, with or without warning. Uh, and we all watched this film, uh, Stanley Kramer's remarkable, still uh, wonderful film, On the Beach. That kept us pretty terrified during the 50s. It was, uh, of course, a great moment for 50s Australia when all these Hollywood stars came to town. Uh, it was a story about how the Northern Hemisphere is wiped out by World War III, a nuclear war, and the cloud is coming down uh, on Australia. And an American submarine, which is captained by Gregory Peck, uh, manages to get to the last remaining outpost post of civilization, uh, which of course was Melbourne. Uh, it was Melbourne because the Hollywood producers decided that no Americans had ever heard of Tasmania, so it had to be Melbourne. So Gregory Peck came down to Melbourne to await Armageddon. After a couple of weeks of Melbourne society, uh, he decided Armageddon out of here, <laughs> and he sailed off with his crew patriotically to be irradiated in America, leaving Ava Gardner on the beach with her alcoholism and her dreadful Australian accent. <laughs> but uh, this uh, Melbourne actually closed down to enable the film to be made. They showed. Uh, people handing out suicide tablets as the atomic cloud was about to hit. I don't know what Dr. Mannix thought of that. But they, um, and I think the last, yes, that's the last frame of the film, Melbourne after the bomb. It looks very much like Melbourne before the bomb, actually. <laughs> but uh, it was pretty spooky in the 50s. It was a scary time. Uh, the Cold War was at its height. There were about 70,000 nuclear warheads at one point, uh, 30 times more powerful than the bomb that had flattened Hiroshima. But they were mainly in the hands of the United States and Russia. And when it came to the crunch, these states were governed by rational people with children and retirement plans uh, for their leaders, no desire to be wiped out, and it did, of course, almost come to the crunch in those 13 days of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And, uh, as it happened, a rational solution was found. It was uh, a deal, actually. It wasn't a triumph for John F. Kennedy, as propaganda has had it. It was, as we now know, a very hard-nosed deal. The Americans agreed to withdraw their uh, rockets from Turkey, and Khrushchev agreed to withdraw his nuclear-tipped rockets from Cuba. So uh, that was the kind of deal that rational people did, and the world breathed a long sigh of relief. But it was that incident, we came so close, that we actually saw sense. Immediately they set up a hotline between the White House and the Kremlin, and in a, they, they started work on, for the first time, an international law. It was called the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, and it opened for signature in 1968. At last, all the countries in the world would sign up to an agreement about nuclear weapons. So the world didn't end with the Cuban Missile Crisis, because governments, not so much because of mad, mutually assured destruction, but because governments were sane, sensible about atomic evisceration. And 67 years on from Nagasaki, 67 years, uh, has induced a kind of complacency uh, about nuclear weapons. Why worry? Why worry? The world didn't even end on Tuesday night, uh, notwithstanding the Mayan calendar. 
The only thing that happened at midnight on Tuesday was that North Korea launched a ballistic missile. Now, North Korea is now believed to have 12 nuclear weapons. Uh, it's successfully tested its first when it withdrew from the nuclear, I call it the NPT for short, in 2003. It launched its first, it tested its first bomb in 2006 and its second in 2009. And on Tuesday, it launched a ballistic missile up through the Earth's atmosphere, down, well, California, Melbourne, wherever. Uh, it, you saw the joy that this uh, caused. People in North Korea, they were jumping for joy. Spontaneously, no one was firing at their feet. Uh, <laughs> They are very proud of, of their ability to make missiles, the dongs, uh, they're called, they call them missiles. They haven't worked out yet how to put one of their bombs in the nose cone of one of their ballistic missiles. Uh, one day, in the next four or five years, they will. And they haven't worked out how to solve the problem of the nuclear warhead exploding on re-entry into the Earth's atmosphere. That's the other problem they have to solve uh, within the next few years. Doubtless they will. And then they'll have a ballistic missile capable of, uh, as I say, hitting California or Melbourne or the, that new American base at Cocos Islands uh, or Darwin. And it's a curious country, North Korea. It's utterly unpredictable, uncontrollable even by China. Uh, its leader is not in the mould of a Kennedy or, the, or a Khrushchev. Uh, fat boy Kim is uh, quite unpredictable. Uh, he executed a general a couple of months ago by mortar fire. Stand over here. Bang. And uh, his crime was for having a drink. He had made the... He, he had been caught taking a drink during the mourning period for... Uh, Kim's father. It was uh, 90 days of no pleasure had been decreed, and they found this general getting a little ple pleasure out of a drop of alcohol. Well, they have 17 gulags, and they have a lot of strange criminal offences. Every household has to have a picture of the great leader up in the uh, living room, and uh, if they don't dust it, if the police come in and find that you haven't dusted your picture of the great leader, uh, that is a crime for which you can be taken off to the gulag. Uh, a couple of years ago, they sunk a South Korean corvette. You remember, 46 young sailors were drowned, uh, and they attacked an island, killing 10 uh, South Koreans. So it is perhaps uh, a little concerning, people in this hemisphere, that North Korea has already 12 nukes and the ballistic missiles to deliver them. Uh, I don't know whether we can be confident and of the Americans as they have built their base in the Cocos Islands uh, and uh, inhabit Darwin. We don't know the details of the status of forces agreement that's been uh, agreed by our government, whether they're going to be allowed to have nuclear weapons to bring nuclear weapons onto Australian soil. Uh, we just don't know. Perhaps we'll have to wait until Senator Assange can, us <laughs> can enlighten us. <laughs> but one, of course, uh, if, if North Korea is a danger, of course, we'll have to follow Israel and, and have a missile shield that can stop any ballistic any rockets from North Korea. Israel has one you've no doubt seen, which uh, stops most of the Hamas missiles. They, they call it Iron Dome. So perhaps we can have one over Darwin, which we can call Factor 50 or something. But uh, <laughs> we, we might, these possibilities, invite us to ask, well, why, how, how do we come to this after the 13 days of the Cuban Missile Crisis? after the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, how did we come to what I will call the Age of Proliferation? Well, let me tell you. The NPT was 
or sounded as though it was a very sensible deal back in 1968. The five states that by then possessed nuclear weapons, they were Britain, France, China, and of course America and the Soviet Union, made a solemn promise. They promised that they would disarm completely. I think uh, we might even have... There you are. Each of the parties to the treaty undertakes to pursue negotiations in good faith on effective measures relating to the cessation of nuclear arms race at an early date and to nuclear disarmament and on a treaty on general and complete disarmament under strict and effective international control. Well, that's a solemn promise the World Court was later to decide that it was a binding legal promise in international law that those states which possessed nuclear weapons would work on a, on a treaty to provide gradual and complete disarmament down to zero. Now, it was a deal, the NPT, and all the other countries, virtually all the other countries in the world were to sign it and to undertake never to acquire nuclear weapons. So you've got the five nuclear weapon states gradually disarming. You get every other country forswearing nuclear weapons forever. And the deal, however, to sweeten it, the sweetener, the lawyers, the consideration for this deal was Article 4.1. Nothing in this treaty shall be interpreted as affecting the inalienable right, and how stupid the drafters were to pick out from the American Declaration of Independence, the inalienable right. Inalienable rights are rights to life, liberty, and security. They're not rights uh, to uh, research and develop nuclear energy. But nonetheless, that's the language, and that's the language that Iran sticks on today. Uh, inalienable right to develop research, production, and use nuclear energy for peaceful purposes. And the treaty goes on, having accorded that inalienable right if you forswear nuclear weapons, it goes on to promise that the Big Five will help you get a full nuclear fuel cycle. So that was the deal that everyone signed up to, almost everyone. We'll look at the exceptions in a moment. But, uh, and it seemed to be sensible. Countries like Australia, uh, you'd get... And, countries in Latin America and the Middle East, they'd get the uh, help from America. President Eisenhower even had promised atoms for peace. Atoms for peace, a full fuel cycle to generate your electricity, which requires enrichment of your uranium up to about 5%, and to make medical isotopes to treat cancer, which requires... Uh, uranium enrichment up to about 20%. So uh, there we were, and uh, the first, very first country to sign there on the first day was the Shah of Iran. So here we are in 1968. The Cuban Missile Crisis coming close to nuclear war has forced us at last to get a law relating to the bomb. Robert McNamara, who had more to do with American policy on nuclear weapons than any other person, said that he never, he was never shown or never heard any argument about the legality of nuclear weapons. And so at last we have a treaty, and we have a, a treaty to avoid proliferation and a treaty to ensure sometime disarmament. Well, unfortunately, the treaty has a number of flaws. The full nuclear fuel cycle that uh, gets you up to 20% very easily can be turned on. There's these, the cylinders, the centrifuges that were to produce 20% of medical isotope uh, level uh, can, in a few months, if they were fast enough, get up to 90%. Uh, here's a diagram for slow learners. Uh, 
there's uh, Professor Netanyahu uh, <laughs> explaining. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? We've gone from Bert the Turtle to uh, Looney Tunes. This is, a, <laughs> this, this is the sort of bomb that Wiley Coyote uh, carries around and, and gets exploded. And so he's explaining to the United Nations uh, in September that it's so easy to go from 20% to 90%, which is weapons grade. And the final stage, of course, uh, he's overlooked a, a few facts, namely that it takes quite a while to weaponize, to work out how to put your enriched uranium into a bomb and then to uh, uh, ensure that you've got a delivery vehicle for it. But there it is. He's uh, explaining the first floor in the NPT. Now, the second floor is that certain countries have not signed up. In 1968, when the treaty was opened, Israel actually had a bomb. It hadn't let it off. It came very close to using it in the Six-Day War in 67. But it had been developing a bomb with apartheid South Africa. And apartheid South Africa had six nuclear weapons by the time Mr. de Klerk, as he says uh, self-heroically, uh, decided to dismantle them. The decision to dismantle them, others say, was taken because of the imminence of a ANC black government, uh, and they didn't want them to uh, inherit them. But that is the only occasion on which uh, weapons have been actually destroyed. At, but Israel had them uh, in embryo in 1968, and it now has up to 200. Uh, it has at least 80. Uh, it has a policy that they call nuclear opacity. Uh, I prefer to call it nuclear hypocrisy. They simply don't admit, and everyone knows, of course, uh, since Mordecai Venunu. Uh, in 1986, told us that they do have uh, a number of bombs. And those bombs, some of them are on Dolphin-class submarines that are stooging around the Mediterranean, the Eastern Mediterranean, uh, with the ability, of course, to hit Tehran. And uh, so that's just one uh, absentee from the treaty at the time it was signed. India now never joined, it has a hundred bombs, it's estimated. Uh, Pakistan never joined, uh, it has now a hundred and ten bombs. And some of them are at Minhas Air Force Base. Now Minhas Air Force Base was attacked in August of this year by uh, Islamic extremists. They were beaten back and largely killed, but they didn't, and they didn't get to the, uh, to the area where the bombs were being kept, but, but one day they will. So it's not actually a very impressive uh, protection against proliferation. Uh, we uh, have four countries at the moment that are outside the NPT. That's the second floor in it that uh, some countries, a few countries are out of it, and that even those countries that are in it can get the benefit of it, can develop a full nuclear fuel cycle, enriching to 20%, as North Korea did, and then just pull out. No sanction for pulling out, and uh, go and build nuclear weapons. So it's not uh, a guarantee. There have been other examples. Let me give a few to you. Thanks particularly because we've got no criminal law against the bomb, we have a character called A.Q. Khan, who was a, a merely a metallurgist, a humble Pakistani metallurgist working in Europe when Bhutto in 1970, the Prime Minister of Pakistan, said, we will, our people will go hungry, will eat grass to get, to pay for a nuclear weapon. Well, Mr. Khan rushed back to Pakistan, said to, got an audience with Bhutto, and said, I can make a nuclear bomb. And he was working at Urenko, which 
had was, was a European uh, designer of centrifuges. He stole the designs, put them through. They were delivered through the uh, Pakistan Embassy in Amsterdam, and he was made head of the Pakistan Atomic Energy Project and developed fairly quickly uh, an atomic bomb, which Pakistan finally tested to great joy in 1998. But in the meantime, A.Q. Khan had been running a kind of nuclear Walmart. He sold his centrifuge designs to North Korea, of course. He sold them to uh, Iraq under Saddam Hussein. He sold them to Gaddafi. And that was his great mistake, because although Saddam used them uh, to design and to, to build his way towards a bomb, but then he invaded Kuwait, and uh, the Allies discovered what he'd been up to and closed him down. Uh, Gaddafi, on the other hand, thanks to A.Q. Khan, had a bomb program that was very well advanced until 2003, when you remember Gaddafi came in from the cold. He decided that uh, he, was, uh, he wanted Western support, he was worried about Al-Qaeda, and he confessed to all his terrorist actions supporting the IRA, and he confessed that he had this nuclear program that had been set up for him by this demonic Pakistani metallurgist A.Q. Khan, who claimed he hadn't been telling the government, although I don't believe that, uh, that he had been selling his nuclear technology to countries like Libya. And it's interesting, you know, uh, Gaddafi ratted on A.Q. Khan. A.Q. Khan was put under house arrest, <laughs> really to save him from the Americans and from uh, an American SEAL attack, I think. Uh, he, was, uh, he was very popular in man in Pakistan, the founder of the, the Islamic bomb. But uh, as far as Gaddafi was concerned, here's the, the moral of the story. Gaddafi gives up his quest for a nuclear bomb in 2003. In 2011, he probably would have had a few, plus some North Korean missiles. Would NATO ever have been able to attack to protect the people of Benghazi? Of course not. Nuclear weapons can provide security for dictators. He would have the prospect of Gaddafi shooting off uh, a nuclear missile at Brussels would have given NATO pause. He would still be there today if he had kept his nuclear program. Now, that lesson has not been lost on other states, on other dictators. Gaddafi is dead today because he gave up his nuclear program. So that's the second problem of the NPT. The third problem is that it simply does not have an enforcement arm. It has what is called in the alphabet soup of the UN agencies the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency. And that is all we have to verify the fact that the 187 countries that are parties to the NPT, including Iran, actually are not developing nuclear bombs. Well, <laughs> that would be all very well if the IAEA inspectors could ever get into the country. They're not allowed to enter without a visa. And when, when Iran doesn't want an inspection or a particular inspector, it simply denies them visas. And even when they do get in, they're not allowed to visit suspected facilities without a, the approval of the, of the state. The IAEA, when it finally got its inspectors into Iran, uh, wanted to go to Parchin, military base. It issued a report a couple of weeks ago saying, all our information is that Iran is weaponizing at Parchin military base, and we can't uh, get in. The, inspector, we, the state of Iran will not allow us, allow our inspectors to get in to check. Um, so that is... The problem with the IAEA at the moment, it doesn't have the power to uh, inspect, and uh, although it's got very sophisticated uh, devices and tests for uh, uranium enrichment and so on, 
it can't uh, get in without permission. So they are just three of the reasons why the NPT today is bust. We are really in an era of potential proliferation. We have four nations already outside it with uh, increasing their nuclear um, armory and the real danger of Iran going nuclear is the fact that we're going to get uh, incredible proliferation in the Middle East. Let me just explain what is going to happen, what is already starting to happen. Iran, uh, although Mr. Netanyahu says uh, it will, he, he confuses nuclear capability with nuclear culpability. I think uh, he's saying it's going to get to 90% enrichment by spring or early summer next year, and that's when he wants to attack. But he's, <laughs> Iran has to then... <laughs> First of all, it's got to make the decision to break for the 90% enrichment, which will take a couple of months to uh, happen. And then it's got to work out its weaponization problems, how to put uh, the bomb together, how to put it in a missile. So uh, there are a couple of years before they're going to actually have a bomb, uh, let alone the issue, which I'll come to in a minute, of whether they're going to shoot it at Israel. But the very fact that Iran is that close has made Saudi Arabia, which actually is a much more logical victim of the Iranian bomb than Israel, if you think about it, Saudi Arabia has already is already negotiating with Pakistan to buy some off-the-peg Pakistani nuclear bombs. So that you'll have Saudi Arabia, then you'll have Egypt. Interesting thing that the Muslim Brotherhood, before it came to power, was all for Egypt becoming uh, a nuclear weapons state. It condemned Mubarak. One of Mubarak's great sins in the Brotherhood's eyes was that he wanted uh, a nuclear-free Middle East. He was a great advocate of a nuclear-free Middle East. And uh, although uh, they haven't been uh, loud about this since they obtained power, the, nuclear, the, the Muslim Brotherhood are committed to a nuclear weapons Egypt. So one result of Iran becoming nuclear capable will be, I suspect, a nuclear full Middle East, as Saudi Arabia certainly, Egypt probably, maybe Jordan and a few other countries, the UAE uh, perhaps, will uh, acquire their own bombs. So it's not, uh, and in fact, the um, United Nations, with great fanfare, uh, a year or two ago, uh, arranged for a conference in Finland in now, in December the, the uh, 17th, it was going to start a conference for a nuclear-free uh, Middle East. And that has become such a bad joke and such an impossibility that uh, it was cancelled a few weeks ago. <laughs> was, they felt they couldn't hold it with a straight face. And when diplomats cancelled the opportunity to go uh, to lavish hotels in places like Helsinki, uh, and uh, you know that uh, it's simply not on. We're, we're looking at a nuclear-full Middle East. So... Here we have the irony that Barack Obama gets the Nobel Prize in 2009 for his Prague speech, which promised a world free of nukes. He did, and that's why he got the Nobel Prize. And uh, three years on, we have a start with START II. Uh, America is down to 8,000 nuclear warheads. Uh, Russia has 10,000. Uh, these bombs, incidentally, are all about 30 times as powerful as the bomb that hit Hiroshima. We have France has 600. Sarkozy said he was going to get it down to 300, but no one believes the French. They do. They lie consistently. Uh, they are probably the most irresponsible of the nuclear powers. Uh, the UK has 180 in its Trident submarines. They've just signed up the Conservative government. This is a bankrupt country, and uh, they've just decided they've spent 83 billion on uh, updating Trident. It is... Uh, uh, it was the Blair government, incidentally, that 
made that decision. So one can't uh, blame Mr. Cameron for continuing it. But the submarine, the British independent nuclear deterrent is always a joke. Uh, Harold Macmillan in 1958 made a television speech saying, uh, we are a great nation and as part of that greatness we must have uh, an in our own nuclear deterrent. And he went home from the studio and wrote in his uh, notebook, this is ridiculous, <laughs> the idea that we should uh, replicate America in any way. But uh, that's what nations want. Uh, the uh, trident, it's, it's very uh, almost Monty Python-esque or certainly uh, something out of Yes Minister. Every uh, new prime minister on his or her first day in office is met by the cabinet secretary who says that they've got to write four letters, one to each trident commander. It's called the letter of last resort and it tells the submarine commander who has all these nuclear weapons uh, what to do if Britain, if the British government is wiped out in a nuclear war. And first of all, it, gives them, it tells them various indications of whether the British, Britain has been wiped out. Uh, the first is whether the BBC has stopped broadcasting. <laughs> I, I, I can think of many other <laughs> reasons for uh, the BBC not broadcasting, but, but there it is. And uh, we don't know, uh, Gordon Brown told me that he was the only Prime Minister who's refused to sign this letter of last resort, which simply means it was written by the uh, head of the Admiralty, where Mrs. Thatcher is believed to have said that they should uh, shoot all their missiles at the enemy. Um, others maybe said they should drop them in the ocean and uh, hightail it to Tasmania. But uh, that is part of the nuclear protocol. Uh, China is actually the most responsible of the nuclear, the old nuclear nations. It's only got 200 nuclear weapons, but it does have, of course, one million soldiers in the Red Army, so uh, it perhaps doesn't uh, rely so much. Then, outside the NPT, you've got 200 nukes in Israel, 110 Pakistan, 100 India, 12 North Korea, uh, and then Saudi Arabia, Egypt, uh, Iran, Venezuela is, uh, according to the CIA, uh, gearing up to join. So there we have, uh, I think, we're entering the age of proliferation. Oh, oh, for the rational days of the Cold War. The dangers, of course, escalate, don't they, with all these countries with nukes. The danger of accident, the danger of a mistake with countries that don't have uh, the, quite the security ability of the old countries. The, there was that near disaster in 1995, quite famous, the Norwegian weather rocket. The Norwegians sent a rocket up to find out more about Norwegian weather. And uh, in Moscow, some idiot analyst decided that this was uh, a launch of uh, a NATO nuclear weapon. And for, for eight terrifying minutes, Boris Yeltsin had his hand trembling, no doubt delirium tremens, over the, uh, <laughs> over the nuclear trigger. So that, uh, that fortunately was avoided. Then you have the added problem of terrorists getting hold of them, uh, the Minhas Air Force Base repeated, and you have the danger of a local war, that, uh, India and Pakistan uh, in over Kashmir, for example, uh, which the climatologists tell us could wipe out a good uh, and affect adversely a good deal of the world's climate. And now we have Iran. The, a wonderful country, 70 million people now. Great cultural traditions, Cyrus and Darius and so on. A country that looks like it will be attacked next year. Uh, I think uh, Netanyahu was a victim of his own rhetoric. He will win the January election despite his little local difficulties with Mr. Lieberman. And uh, if his old buddy with whom he made money in the 70s at First Boston Corporation, uh, Mitt Romney had, had been made president, then I think it would have been a joint strike. I think the Obama White House will still do its best to dissuade uh, Israel. 
for a little while yet. Uh, Obama spoke at the same UN meeting saying we will not allow Iran to get the bomb. That's elliptical, of course. He spoke of a coalition. Our coalition will not allow Iran to get the bomb. And when an American president uses the word coalition, he generally means the UK and Australia. So, what is the prospect? What, what country are we possibly, probably going to attack? What country is Israel likely to attack? The Shah of Persia wanted the bomb, there's no doubt, uh, from those of his associates that his grand nuclear 22 power stations he was planning, that he uh, spoke to them quite openly about his desire for Iran to be a nuclear state. And when in 1979 the Ayatollah uh, came in, he denounced nuclear weapons. They were Western-made. They were un-Islamic, was his word. And then they went to war, Iran and Iraq, the Ayatollah versus Saddam. Dr. Kissinger evinced a profound hope that both sides would lose. And, <laughs> and, and millions were killed. And Saddam was winning because he used chemical weapons, gas tens of thousands of young Iranians. And the world looked the other way because the world was generally behind Saddam in that war. And in 1985, the head of the Revolutionary Guard said to the Ayatollah, look, we, we can only win this war with nuclear weapons. So the Ayatollah changed his view of the westernized, un-Islamic bomb and decided that uh, to protect Islam, the bomb was indeed holy. So uh, that, was the, um, that was the change of plan. And how do we know? <laughs> they, the first person they invited uh, in 1986 to visit what was left of the nuclear industry was A.Q. Khan. And uh, the, he visited after the war. Uh, they paid him millions in the early 90s to, for his centrifuge designs, his weaponization projects, and so on. So there is no doubt that uh, the new Iran, there he is, there's the supreme leader. Look, he looks so benign. This man is a mass murderer. He is an international criminal. He is a man who, without the slightest compunction, has ordered the deaths of thousands of people. He obviously sleeps very easily. But that is the president of Iran in 1988. And in 1988, the worst atrocity, single atrocity that has ever happened to prisoners uh, happened. And the, it's hard to tell you just how vulnerable prisoners are, particularly political prisoners. Um, and that is why we have the Geneva Conventions. That is why so much of international law focuses on the protection of prisoners in danger. At the end of the war with Saddam, this guy, as president, had, about, had thousands of political prisoners in jails. They were in jail. They were Marxists. They were communists. They were members of factions that didn't accept his particular version of Shia Islam. What did they do to those prisoners at the end of the war? They simply made a decision. This man and the Ayatollah and uh, Rafsanjani decided that they would be exterminated. So they sent death squads into the prisons, and over six weeks, they exterminated 7,000 political prisoners. Many of them had already served their sentences. They just uh, checked on their affiliation, checked their records, what they'd been saying to each other, and they took them out in a conga line to gallows that they rigged up in the prison auditorium, and they'd hanged them six at a time. Uh, I know this, and I'm affected by it, because a couple of years ago, with Jen Robinson, I as my assistant, we did a... Uh, an inquiry into these 90, 1988 
prison massacres and spoke to a lot of people who were, we spoke to relatives, we spoke to victims, uh, to other people who'd been in prison at the same time. Some of the women uh, apostates were not actually uh, hanged, they were beaten excruciatingly five times a day uh, until they either agreed to pray or uh, committed suicide, and, and a number of them had survived. So, uh, and the 7,000, when you think that the death uh, marches in uh, Samarkand, when 1,300 Australians were marched to death by the Japanese, uh, 5,000 in, in the Philippines, prisoners, uh, you think of Srebrenica, 7,000 men and boys who were really uh, exterminated by Mladic. Well, the people who perpetrated those atrocities are, well, the Japanese generals were executed, Mladic is on trial at the moment in The Hague, uh, but this man, no one dares, and he is, in my view, the greatest international criminal we have uh, at the moment because he went on to order 162 executions of dissidents that were outside Iran. Salman Rushdie was one who got away. Uh, then at the Green Movement in 2009, uh, he directed the show trials where they were alleged to have conspired with the BBC and George Soros and uh, were uh, over 100 were killed. A uh, thousand was tortured. They're now arresting their lawyers. Every lawyer who has acted for an opposition figure in Iran uh, in 2009 and 10 is now in prison. So that is, they are the, that is the mullah, mullah without mercy. That is a picture taken recently. They have not told the families of the people they killed, the thousands that they killed and buried in mass graves, where they are actually buried. And they don't, they meet at uh, the Tehran Cemetery, the place of the damned, it is a section in the cemetery where they bury those who've been executed for crime. And it's suspected that the mass grave is there. And here are the families of those who were killed in that terrible massacre still uh, they come every year on the anniversary of the beginning of the massacre and they're not allowed to know and they're very quickly dispersed. That's a picture of people trying to mourn their, victim, their, their relatives killed by the state. And, uh, you know, people today, when you... Uh, the argument that uh, we shouldn't worry about Iran with nuclear weapons, it's rational. Well, yes, the government of Iran is rational. It's about as rational as a gang of serial killers. And uh, that is, to me, the, uh, uh, an argument for being very concerned about uh, the bomb in their hands. But concerned enough to attack, that's a different matter. That is a matter of international law. And that... International law is stated in Article 51 of the United Nations Charter. Article 51, the right of self-defense. Well, it is very clear that Israel has no right in international law to attack Iran because in order to have the right of self-defense, it's got to be in response to an imminent danger of attack. This law, this international law, was decided in a famous case about in the 1830s. It's bizarre that such an important aspect of international law today should uh, reside in this case. It was a case where a paddle-wheel steamer on Lake Niagara had been uh, used by Canadian rebels who were rebelling against the British uh, control of Canada, and they were assisted by Americans who actually owned this paddle wheel steamer called the SS Caroline. And uh, the British captured the American steamer, they fixed the, the old paddle wheel, uh, and they 
and it, it went over the falls. So the paddle wheel steamer crashed over Niagara Falls and there followed a very angry correspondence between the British and the Americans as to whether the British were entitled to attack and destroy this American boat in their self-defense against Canadian rebels. And at the end of a long correspondence, uh, the test was agreed between the two countries, and it was basically a test of imminence. Is there an imminent danger of attack? Uh, it's, it is, I love this case in a sense because it's so anachronistic, not just paddle-wheel steamers, but Canadian rebels. It's, <laughs> it does, uh, it's, it's very curious. But there it is, it was uh, upheld by the uh, court at Nuremberg, I prefer, actually, FDR uh, in his fireside chat after, before Pearl Harbor, but he had given the uh, leave to the American Navy to sink Nazi submarines when, when they weren't at war. And, and he gave, he explained to the American people that he'd done this because uh, in, in right of self-defense, if you, if a, <laughs> he said, if you're walking along and a rattlesnake rears up in front of you, uh, you don't wait until it strikes uh, before you strike it. So, so the rattlesnake test or the Caroline test requires Iran to be an imminent threat. And how possibly can it be an imminent threat when it's several years off having a bomb and there's no evidence that it's going to use it, or if it ever gets a bomb, that it will bomb Israel. This is the problem that Israel has. It seems to me that it will be another Iraq all over again if Israel and America, without and UK and Australia, uh, attack uh, this country without uh, waiting for evidence that it will attack Israel. Of course, uh, point to the vicious anti-Semitic rhetoric of uh, Ahmadinejad. Well, A, Ahmadinejad is lost power and he'll be out in June of next year and uh, the Supreme Leader will uh, put in another nominee. Only, you can only stand for election as president if the Supreme Leader, who has all the power, uh, approves. And uh, secondly, I don't think that Iran leadership, the Revolutionary Guards who are making so much money, the mullahs who, who are very happy with all their, with their money, with their wives, with their BMWs, will put all that at risk because they know that sitting in the Eastern Mediterranean are those five Dolphin-class submarines with nuclear weapons. And I'll tell you, the letter of last resort, which is signed by Mr. Netanyahu, uh, will not tell them to drop their bombs in the ocean if Israel is wiped out. Uh, it will be an eye for an eye, two teeth for one tooth. Uh, it will be uh, a flattening of destruction of Tehran. So I don't think that is what uh, the mullahs will um, be interested in doing. They will certainly want the bomb. They do want the bomb. They're moving towards it. They'll want it to, in, to, to assure their own power against any resurgence of the Green Movement. They'll want it to uh, deal with Saudi Arabia, to impress the Shia Muslim world, to make converts, to, to lead the Muslim world. And they will do that, they think, with the bomb. And the other problem with Mr. Netanyahu's rhetoric about striking Iran is that he talks of it as if it will be this wonderful euphemism, a surgical strike. Now, a surgical strike is like collateral damage. Uh, it means death, but surgical indicates only a few. Uh, in Osirak in 1981, where the Israeli Air Force leveled Saddam's reactor, they killed 10. In Al-Kibar in 2007, where they did the same thing to Syria's reactor, Syria was actually had a nuclear weapons program. You can imagine what Assad would be like today with a nuclear weapon. The, 
the surgical strike just isn't a possibility because the first institute you've got to strike is all the centrifuges at Natanz. And they have 5,000 people working around the clock, two shifts, 5,000 people in each. Engineers, scientists, workers, and so forth. So any Israeli attack on Natanz will kill 5,000. Then there are various other, Estefan and Boucher and so forth, uh, the heavy water plant at Iraq, um, and in those places, the IAEA tells us, there are 371 tons of uranium hexafluoride. Now, when uranium hexafluoride is hit and goes up as a gas, and the wind blows it across a city maybe, it's an asphyxiating gas. It can kill. And so you're looking at the possibility, this surgical strike, of taking out thousands of people. So it's not a, uh, the attack on uh, Iran would not be justifiable in self-defense and it would be disproportionate. Well, Mr. Netanyahu is convinced that the Israelis want to wipe, uh, Isra the Iranians want to wipe Israel off the face of the map. That is, uh, seems to be uh, a reference to a biblical, a Quranic prophecy about the return of the 12th Imam, who will come in when there's a state of chaos, when there's a shriek from the sky, as the hadith, the uh, saying of Muhammad puts it. But that, in fact, is, uh, uh, is not uh, an immediate threat. That is a millennium prophecy about what will happen not only to Israel, but to everyone else, to all the unbelievers who will be wiped off the face of the earth when the 12th Imam returns. Mr. Ahmadinejad has made a lot of mileage as a politician from saying that the 12th Imam's return is just round the corner. When he was mayor of Tehran, he spent $50 million on building a train line, uh, a fast train, so that when the uh, Imam returned, from, uh, he would reappear at his shrine about 50 miles from Tehran, and he could uh, catch this fast train back. Uh, so he would, it very much impressed the voters. And uh, Mr. Ahmadinejad went from mayor to president. But, you know, sanctions are not working on Iran at the moment. The people who are profiting from sanctions are the Revolutionary Guards who are collared the trade in all the important medicines. It's the middle class, the supporters of the Green Movement, who's, you know, the ultimate future of Iran is to get rid of the malocracy and uh, to uh, uh, allow the Green Movement to triumph. But uh, they're the ones who are being hit hardest. Diplomacy is not working. It's quite a farce. The, the, the European Union is pretending to have these talks, this diplomatic caravanserai. Uh, the Iranians are very good at talking, and when they're sick of talking, they just call for a prayer break. And uh, so the, the, the talks have to stop. And all the time, the centrifuge fusions are whirring uh, at 29%. They're up to 29% at the moment at Natanz uh, while the talks go on. So here we are in this age of proliferation. Um, what's happened to law? Now the NPT is bust. Well, international law, and particularly international humanitarian law, has made remarkable progress. In 1145, uh, it banned the use of the crossbow in wars between Christians uh, at the Second Lateran Council. So uh, all the armies brought in the Swiss guards who weren't Christian and uh, were you hired them to use their crossbows against your enemy. So, uh, but then in the 19th century, we banned the dum-dum bullet. We banned uh, in the 20th century the landmine. Uh, all these uh, weapons that uh, uh, breach international law because they cause unnecessary suffering. And we haven't come near to the bomb. Lionel Murphy did his best when the French were 
holding their, all their tests in the Pacific, uh, he took them to the world court. Uh, and the, once they got there, France said, oh, no, we'll, we won't test in the atmosphere, we'll test under sea. And so the world court said, oh, this is a different case, so we can't decide it. And uh, they held 147 tests underwater. Scientists are now finding the increased rate of cancer in the islanders that they believe resulted from that. But in 1996, finally, the World Court was forced by the General Assembly of the United Nations to consider the legality of the bomb. Uh, this was not welcome to the five great powers who uh, had the bomb. Uh, they, they didn't like it at all. So Britain and America said to the World Court, uh, use your discretion not to decide this case because it will interfere with our disarmament progress. Because they'd made no disarmament progress at all by 1996, but that was their argument. So what was Australia to do? When it came to Australia's turn to address the court, Gavin Griffiths, who was the Solicitor General, got up and he said, as, as the American and uh, uh, British advocates have said, uh, you shouldn't decide this case at all. It will interfere with the diplomatic progress towards disarmament. And uh, so the court nodded. He sat down. And then Gareth Evans got up. And he said, well, if you do decide to decide this case, nuclear weapons are illegal. <laughs> and, and he went on and argued, and I think Australia's position was utterly correct. In 1996, before the development of human rights law, uh, that under international humanitarian law, under war law, uh, they breached the rule that uh, uh, weapons must always be able to distinguish between uh, civilian and soldier, between hospital and, uh, and military barracks, and of course, nuclear weapons don't. They reach, reach the rule about unnecessary suffering, the rule about proportionality for all sorts of reasons, military uh, and otherwise. It's quite plain that uh, nuclear weapons uh, are the worst form of weapon and they breach all the war law rules, and the Red Cross, of course, is adamant about this. Uh, this is even before, as I say, no one talked about human rights law, international human rights law, because it hadn't really developed in 1996. That was before Pinochet was taken in, before the uh, 1998 treaty for the International Criminal Court. But uh, the court was deeply concerned. International judges are, to some extent, political, but they've got to keep an eye on their own oaths. Uh, they were very torn. The Japanese judge, Judge Oda, who had actually trained in the 1940s as a kamikaze pilot, obviously unsuccessfully, uh, <laughs> was, the, was the one who uh, refused, upheld Gavin Griffith's argument and refused to adjudicate it. But um, along came the British. It was the British barristers uh, for the British government who said, look, maybe a low-yield nuclear weapon against warships on the high sea would be legal. Or it would be legal to hit troops in sparsely populated areas with a nuclear weapon. And uh, so you could have a clean nuclear weapon, was the British argument. It was scientifically nonsense, but of course you, can, uh, you can't cross-examine, unfortunately, uh, experts in the world court in The Hague. So, they got away with that, and um, then the idea that in extremis, if a state had its back against the wall, it could use nuclear weapons in self-defense. This was the most absurd argument at all, because it's precisely when a state has its back against the wall that the world is in greatest danger. You can imagine if Hitler, there's this, one of my wonderful moments of ironic history, in 1941, when Heisenberg, who was the head of Hitler's atomic project, was asked by Speer, Albert Speer, whether we can make a nuclear bomb, he said, in four years, pity we got rid of all those Jewish scientists, it might have been, we might have been able to do it earlier. And um, Speer said, oh well, I won't 
four years, the war will be over by then. It was going well for Germany at the time. And he said, I won't tell Hitler. He gets so excited at these ideas. He'll put terrible pressure on you to, uh, to get a bomb. So you can imagine Hitler in his bunker. Uh, at the end, what he did was fire V2 rockets at anywhere civilians in Britain. He didn't care where they fell, the, uh, the doodlebugs. If he'd had uh, a nuclear weapon, uh, it would have been Gotterdammerung. Uh, Saddam, too when his back was to the wall in Kuwait after he was forced out of Kuwait by the Coalition of the Willing in 1991. He had some scuds. What did he do? He fired them at Israel. Israel wasn't even a participant in that war. It had kept utterly neutral. But uh, it is precisely when dictators and states are up against the wall that they uh, use weapons. So, disastrously, this was the... International Court of Justice, it delivered this message. This is what the judges, the majority of judges said. The destructive power of nuclear weapons cannot be contained in either space or time. They have the potential to destroy all civilization, the entire ecosystem of the planet. Ionizing radiation has the potential to damage the future environment, food and marine ecosystems, and to cause genetic defects and illnesses in the future generations. So, a law that bans weapons that cause unnecessary suffering what more do you want? How can you go from that to the idea that nuclear weapons are legal? You could do it like this. The this is the verdict. The threat or use of nuclear weapons would generally be contrary to the rules of law applicable in armed conflicts, and in particular, the principles and rules of humanitarian law. So look at that weasel word, generally. Go down to this. The court cannot conclude definitively whether the threat or use of nuclear weapons would be lawful in the extreme circumstances of self-defense, in which the very survival of a state would be at stake. Hitler in his bunker. <laughs> that was the dreadful conclusion of the world court. But there was one saving grace. They said the law is changing. International law is developing. It's in a very advanced process of change. There is a current trend that leads towards, would lead to banning the bomb. And in my book, I argue that we've now reached that point where we, law should declare the acquisition of new atomic weapons is a crime against humanity. That is uh, the message that uh, the new weapons of crime against humanity, that is the trend that has now reached and particularly been reached by the development of human rights law because, of course, the bomb is a breach of the right to life, the right to live free of torture from ionizing radiation. So, the future uh, architecture of a a legal basis would be firstly, uh, and this can be done in 2016 and various states are determined to do it, at the ICC review conference which will decide whether there should be new crimes uh, to make the acquisition of further weapons a crime against humanity. Secondly, enforcing that disarmament obligation I showed you earlier on, the disarmament obligation on all states uh, to gradually reduce to zero, and thirdly, to have a proper international inspection regime, an organization that can inspect anywhere without requiring a visa to get in. The first of those developments will be, as I say, at the uh, ICC conference in 2016. Uh, Australia, for all its uh, work in this area, and the first, oddly enough, the first person to actually be put in a position to do the work was Doc Evatt. Uh, in, there was this wonderful moment in 1946 when there were only three atom bombs in the world. America had them all. Truman offered to destroy them if every other state in the world agreed never to acquire one. And Doc Evatt was the broker of this deal uh, as the first chair of the UN's Atomic Energy Agency. And uh, not even he could uh, broker it because Gromyko, the Russian foreign minister, was uh, kept vetoing 
proposals because, of course, Stalin was desperately uh, developing his bomb that exploded in 1949. So Australia has the chance again to, uh, uh, in 2016 to lead that movement. Mexico is leading it at the moment. Australia has been very quiet, I suspect, because no one is very sure who will be in government in the year 2016. But uh, at the end, I'll leave you with this hypothetical. Will we ever see, in 30 years' time perhaps, in 2042, uh, Obama's promise, Nobel promise, come true? Uh, and a ceremony at the Peace Palace in The Hague, a majestic ceremony with uh, Grandfather Obama stooped with a cane and all his grandchildren, there'll be dozens of them. Uh, uh, Putin in a wheelchair, suffering from early Alzheimer's. <laughs> Australian politicians will be there. I don't know who will be Prime Minister. I suspect I can see Malcolm Turnbull as leader of the opposition, the, the Labour opposition. <laughs> uh, and then um, they'll be there to witness the dismantling of the last American nuclear bomb and Russian nuclear bomb. The last bomb from each country will be solemnly dismantled. Well, I think that hypothetical could happen, but if and only if there has been a nuclear accident or incident or war or something comparable to the Cuban Missile Crisis that forces the international community to act as that crisis forced it to act to put in place uh, a proper legal architecture for the banning of the bomb. Uh, and for better or worse, I do think that there is likely to be a nuclear accident or incident in the next 10 or 15 years that may bring that about. And in the meantime, all we can do is keep the pressure on to get a pledge from this government to support a move to make the acquisition of nuclear weapons a crime against humanity at the, when that is put forward to the big conference in 2016. And I think ultimately we have to recognize, and I make a criticism in my book of Amnesty and Human Rights Watch, who have not perceived nuclear arms as an issue, as a human rights issue at all. They've simply ignored uh, nuclear weapons, when it poses, the bomb poses the greatest danger of all to human rights. If you, at the UN, where I was a judge for a while, you see they've got a department dealing with disarmament and a part, department dealing with human rights. They don't talk to each other. They really, they're two separate fields. We do not, all those textbooks, there are dozens of them now on human rights law, you don't find nuclear weapons in their index. And yet, uh, they are, of course, the greatest threat to human rights, the right not to have life arbitrarily taken away. Just to finally remind you of that, uh, I'll leave you with that picture. It was a photograph taken at Nagasaki uh, a couple of weeks after the bomb by an American soldier, the boy standing to attention before he throws his dead brother on the funeral pyre. The right to life and the right not to lose it arbitrarily, the right not to be subjected to the torture of ionizing radiation uh, is really one of the most fundamental rights of all. And uh, in this new age of nuclear proliferation, we should never lose sight of that. Thank you.